0: The Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Uh, we're, we're so happy to have you here. Um, Is there anyone who is here at the Interval uh, for the very first time, not even for an event, but the very first time in this space? That's not true. (laughs) We've got one there, one there. Any other? All right. Well, fantastic. Welcome. Thank you. Let's have a round of applause for our four or five. So uh, just to give you, it sounds like People don't really need it, but for, uh, for the official record and maybe for some folks listening in at home, um, the Interval is open every day of the week from 10 a.m. to midnight. And uh, this is the headquarters of uh, the Long Now Foundation. And also, uh, if we do say so ourselves, a pretty darn good bar and cafe that's open to the public. Um, and one of the things we do, all right, the public is well represented. Thank you, public. Um, we're, we we uh, we have uh, as I said um, you know we're, we're we're open all the time but uh, these events a series we call conversations at the interval uh, are intended to uh, be kind of a partner and a complement to the seminar series which if you've attended is a is a large a, a wonderful event that we've been doing for 12 or 13 years now uh, a monthly series of talks um, here in this conversation series uh, it's it's a little more uh, intimate and um, some of the the same speakers with sort of a different dynamic. Um, And I'm happy to say, basically, every talk that we've done, which is numbering uh, over 40 now, uh, have have all been sellouts. So we really appreciate your being a part of that, continuing that streak tonight. And tonight, uh, we're happy to have another wonderful speaker, uh, Abby Smith Rumsey, uh, whose new book we have uh, on sale in the back, Um, and she will, uh, as our speakers always do, be staying around afterwards to sign books, to to chat with you and answer more questions uh, if we don't get to them all on the stage. Uh, Abby is a historian whose work has spanned Soviet-era archives uh, through a decade of working at the Library of Congress and also consulting on how institutions can best collect and curate their digital data but she's also looking ahead to the impacts of our present-day technology, not only their direct effect on the future, but how they affect the perceptions of history. Please give a big round of applause for Abby smith Ramsey.
1: Thank you all very much for coming, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, Tonight I want to talk about the relationship between memory, human memory, and the technologies we create as memory technologies. And I'm doing so at this particular point of inflection, which to me is very interesting as a historian. And that is when storage of memory, of cultural and personal memory, is going from the default mode of print, this thing, um, the heart of darkness. I'm borrowing this actually from the Manual um, for Civilization. Um, And the default mode in the future, actually in the present, is this. It's a digital. Now, what is the lifespan of this? Although it holds a lot more than a book does, its lifespan is actually rather short. Or I should say, its battery life is actually rather short. Whereas a book, if I were to pick up any book on those shelves up there in 100 years or 500 years, I would be able to read them. This, once the battery wore down, I would not be able to read. And if I tried to open it and read what was in here, I wouldn't make any sense of it. So we're really talking about a very different kind, of a mat- a different kind of memory. You know, we have a wonderful infrastructure in place for managing our knowledge in the form of physical objects. And I know as someone who's worked in archives and libraries, that the trick is if we manage the physical objects and keep them physically intact, then in fact we think we can keep the knowledge alive and that has worked remarkably well over time. Digital technology doesn't make that possible. Unfortunately what we have are very ephemeral bits and bytes that decay over time alarmingly and also are dependent upon machines to encode and to read and electrical grids and, and really reliable power supplies to give life long life to these things and they're not really passive they're actually memory systems in the digital age are actually servers that need to keep spinning and require a lot of energy and in fact a lot of air conditioning now those of you who know the long now foundation as I know the long now foundation know that they define long now as 10,000 years in the future and the past 10,000 years And most of the speakers who speak here um, and at their other series curiously spend most of their time talking about the next 10,000 years or the next 100 years. When I, as a historian, know there is very little we can say about the next 100 years, let alone 10,000 years for sure. On the other hand, we can say a lot about the last 10,000 years. And actually, it's quite stunning how much more we know now than we did 100 years ago because of the information, the memory technologies that we're inventing now to mine material evidence for information that we never would have thought possible, including DNA forensic analysis. So I want to focus tonight on what we can learn about the future by looking at the past. So I want to say that if if you're really interested in the next 10,000 years, you have no better evidence to look to than the past 10,000 years. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Now, the story actually begins a lot earlier than the long now. It begins in the long ago. This is actually... Uh, this is, dates from about 40,000 years ago, we think. And I'll talk a little bit more about it. But I think that memory technologies, and in fact, the human species, really took a, a real pivotal turn That moment, sort of in the Garden of Eden, or at least it was a Garden of Eden moment, when we realized that we're going to die. As far as we know, there is no other species that understands that they are going to die. Not just that their own partners or something dies, their children dies, but that we anticipate that we're going to die, we know that. And I think that it changes everything for the way humans think about time. And I want to talk a little bit more about that. But this is early evidence from long ago, about 40,000 years ago, that human beings, from the very beginnings, became obsessed with cheating death, in fact. And I look at this technology of paint on cave walls as the earliest concrete evidence of cheating death by, in fact, extrapolating the contents of our mental life, our imagination, our, our sort of spiritual life, and putting it in a safe place. Actually, we're outsourcing it to durable physical objects. And you can see, it's very familiar. We don't know what these people are telling us, but we know that they're human. And we know that because they actually signed their own piece of art. I think of this as the earliest kind of... um, It's a Paleolithic selfie, in a way. You know, what's so interesting is that, as a species, we are not the strongest, we are not the fastest, and we are not even the brainiest, I hate to say it, but we actually don't have the biggest brains. And we certainly don't live the longest. The one thing that we have is this amazing thing that we have collectively created, which is our collective memory, a kind of collective brain, which is a thing that we keep alive over generations, which makes us able to accumulate knowledge over time. And actually, we are now at this juncture on the planet, when we are not only the dominant species on the planet, but through our collective memory and collective brain, we are dangerously dominant over the planet. That's another reason why I think this is a really critical time for us. You know, the sense that we have, the certainty that we are separate from other people, that we're going to die, and this collective memory that we have, have endowed us with a couple of unique qualities from other species. We have a certain temporal depth perception, which is very deep, very deep into the future and very deep into the past. And through this temporal depth perception, we actually can engage in mental time travel. We can deduce what happened in the past and we can project that into the future. We can, we can engage in conjectural thinking. And through language, in fact, we can engage in what I think of as synchronized mental time travel. Um, no better example is um, that crew that 18 or 20 years ago started to put together the New Horizons mission to Pluto. And that team, and people cycled in and out of that team at, at the, the JPL, that team was engaged in mental time travel synchronized for an astounding period of time and how they ended up actually hitting their target after that, um, especially after the appropriations scares they received along the way from our friends in Congress. It's really a testimony to how collective action and collective memory really um, is a very powerful thing. I think because of the ephemerality of digital technology, we need to really focus on ensuring that we have, in fact, this collective memory into the future and we need to reimagine memory when it's not fixed, when it's in fact even more ephemeral than our wetware in our brain. I think that, and I talk about this in some depth in the book, there are two misperceptions people, even very brilliant people, labor under that I think are really going to keep us from imagining memory the way we need to. The first is this period of information inflation that we're living through. Is, uh, the people think that it's created by computers and that it is the first time in history that this has ever happened. This is a a moment that's never happened before. Wrong on two counts. Every information technology, when it's new, creates a kind of vertigo. In this case, it's a digital vertigo, but as I'll show you, there's always a vertigo. And the other misconception we have is about memory itself. Because memory is not data storage. Memory, in fact, is is a biological feature of all creatures. And the first step in making robust memories over time is to forget. And the reason that we have memory to begin with, that nature has endowed all creatures with it, is because memory is not about the past. It is about the future. If we were born only with DNA, we'd all perish second or third day in life. And that's true even of amoebas. So with that, I want to start with talking a little bit about technology. Many of you will recognize this is one of the first and certainly the most durable information technology that humans have created. It's a clay tablet, also known as a cuneiform. You know, technology is a tool that's created by human beings. Technologies have no powers of their own. They only have the powers that we endow those technologies with. And the technologies, especially around memory, are usually invented to solve a problem or to meet some kind of a market demand. Now, about 5,000 years ago, when the scribes in Mesopotamia invented these clay tablets, what they were responding to was the need to keep track of goods and services in exchange or in storage. So they were basically accountants that invented writing. But within a relatively short period of time, a couple thousand years, I mean Sumerian time, that's relatively quick, Um, The technology began to acquire lots of different capacities and develop certain potentials in human beings that were totally unanticipated by the accountants. Another lesson for technologists today, if they think they understand anything about the uses, the future uses of what they create. In fact, what they came up with fairly quickly, and this tablet is about 2,700 years old, um, is uses including prayers and omens. If you could actually read this, Now, I just want to point out, incidentally, that like the Rosetta Stone, um, this is actually iLegible. It's a wonderful technology. We can still read it today. And if you did read Akkadian, does anybody in the audience read Akkadian? Good. I'll get no quizzes on what it says. But I do know that it's filled with divinations about omens from um, animals um, and human birth defects, telling us about what the future is going to be. So if you were um, to... To to be able to read this, you would know that in fact, cuneiforms were very quickly recruited to do something that accountants never dreamt about. And the first recorded poem that we have, the epic, Gilgamesh, uses this technology. And as you may know, Gilgamesh is actually an epic about a man who wanted to become immortal. So, very appropriate. I'm going to skip ahead to the next information technology, which is really interesting. when people invent new technologies, it's not, in fact, because they want to do something new with it. It's very seldom that they really do. This is the Gutenberg Bible. It was created, first um, case of movable type, actually, it was created in Germany in the 1450s. And the man who invented this, Johannes Gutenberg, who was a um, goldsmith, actually, was not uh, meeting a demand for a newfangled Bible. What he was meeting a demand for was this. This in fact is the giant Bible of Mainz, one of the masterpieces of hand scripture. It was done in the same town in exactly the same decade, the giant Bible of Mainz. And what Gutenberg wanted to do was to create something that looked like this, but could be done much faster and be sold much cheaper. So the demand that he was responding to actually was more of this, faster and cheaper. Now, it took a long time for print technology to find lots of other uses, but it did, um, you won't be surprised to know that in fact the first people who showed up to really domesticate print, uh, movable type, for new purposes, there are two types that always show up with new information technology. The first group were pornographers, Uh, no surprise. There was a lot of pornography about the Pope and what he did in his private chambers. Um, And other types of depictions of human and bestial behavior, not surprising. but The other type that always show up are ideological fanatics. They're the ones that are, you know, pushing against uh, the the authorities that control all the existing means of communication. And so the papacy took about a hundred years to figure out how to use print, to fight the sectarians who domesticated it within, I don't know, a couple of decades. Martin Luther is the most famous, but there were many more, many more who actually started to build utopian, or we think of them as dystopian societies, like Boko Haram at the time. And I can tell you that, um, as a historian, the communities that they put together in Germany and in Italy and other places, Boko Haram has nothing on them. They were actually quite horrific experiments in utopias, and they were all broadcast through this technology of print, pretty much like the internet is used today to recruit people. Um, It also takes several generations of being a blank negative, in this case a print negative, to figure out, um, to exhibit some of the behaviors that technologies always uh, sort of unleash in humans. I'm showing a picture of Michel de Montaigne, who lived in the 16th century, and he was among the earliest print natives there was. Now Michel de Montaigne, as you may know, was an essayist, a man whose works are so wonderful that they are still in print. There's a beautiful volume of them actually back there. Um, And the thing that so intrigues me about Montaigne is that he would not have been a writer if it weren't for print. He would have been like all the other gentlemen of his age, writing letters to his family or something, but he never would have published essays and printed them. He disingenuously said that he was writing for his family so that they could remember him when he was gone. But if that were the case, he wouldn't have done five or six different editions of his works over time constantly updating them. In fact, he was writing for time. So he not only, you know, print not only created a new writer, it created a total new audience, a totally new audience of readers, and you know, a new genre, the essay, and there were many other genres as well. You know, when people um, are confronted with new information technologies, there are usually two camps that set up on the frontiers of knowledge, so to speak. There are those who look at the technology as disruptive and very creative and exciting. And those are the sort of techno-optimists. There are those who look at the same technology and see something destructive and really quite horrific. And those are people, the sort of nostalgics, I would say, or the the techno-curmudgeons. And in the book, I talk about quite a few very poignant stories about people who had problems adjusting to new technology, or the techno-optimists who made spectacular mistakes in thinking about what technology was going to do to improve the world. Um, You know, no no point taken for the 21st century, of course. But I want to summarize some of that um, by quoting from my favorite um, curmudgeon of technology, the sort of granddaddy of them all, Socrates. And here I'm going to quote Socrates about the invention of writing, which he thought would lead to the death of memory itself. For this invention will produce forgetfulness in the minds of those who learn to use it, because they will not practice their memory. Their trust in writing produced by external characters which are no part of themselves will discourage the use of their own memory within them. You, sir, have invented an elixir not of memory, but of reminding. And you offer your pupils the appearance of wisdom, not true wisdom. For they will read many things without instruction and will therefore seem to know many things when they are for the most part ignorant and hard to get along with, since they are not wise but only appear wise. Or as a friend of mine would say, they know where to look things up in other words. But you know, truthfully, Socrates got it wrong. It was the cultures that adapted and adopted writing that really moved ahead and actually spread the sort of liberty of reading to many people within. And let's note that Socrates, who called himself an ironist, was in all things ironic in his statement because he knew that Plato was writing down everything that he said. And that if it weren't for writing, we would never know that Socrates had even existed. So he was wrong on many counts, but I guess he has the last laugh. Um, I, I really love this quote though because he was among the first people to point out the moral hazard of outsourcing something as intimate as our personal memory and knowledge to objects outside of ourselves and outside of our control. And that's really what he's really talking about. Here he raises the moral nature of the uses that we make of our technologies and how every time we use a tool to do something that we used to do for ourselves, we alienate a part of ourselves from our own being and have to take responsibility for how those things are used. Um, I want to move on very quickly um, to um, a moment in the Enlightenment. This is Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the great bibliomaniacs of all time. And he was someone who uh, not only collected a lot of books, but was also... um, he also couldn't live without them in some ways. But his, his vision of books and libraries was such that, in fact, he thought that knowledge, and this was true of all of the founders, he believed that knowledge was going to be something that was truly transformative and set people free. And so when he had his collection, he, and the Library of Congress lost their collection, he sold it to them as a kind of replacement. And there's a, an example of something that we can do actually nowadays with technology. He actually took his private passion and wedded it to the public purpose of Greater Enlightenment. I want to say also that um, a funny thing happened on the way from the Enlightenment to the 19th century, but one of the most important things that changed is the the use of knowledge, the way that we create knowledge, really changes. Um, I want to um, salute Otto over here. We have a drawing of Otto. Um, drawing by Otto, I think of Otto. This is actually a depiction from a book in the 1490s about the nature of knowledge. And at that time it was believed that these ventricles in the brain, one was for reason, one was for imagination, and one was for memory. And this idea of knowledge actually was one that Thomas Jefferson embraced. And he actually organized his library according to reason, memory, and imagination. But by the time he died in 1826, this view of the world and of the arrangement of knowledge and how we actually got knowledge was effectively dead, even though he didn't realize it. And that was because sometime at the end of the 19th, sorry, the 18th century, when Jefferson was alive, but without his knowledge, geologists began to understand that the world is very old, very, very old, and it knows everything. They discovered, in other words, deep time. And I want to um, explain a little bit about that. The current information technology, sorry, the current inflation. In, in information doesn't really begin in the 1990s when the web became commercially available um, and accessible to anyone with an internet connection. It didn't begin with the invention of computers in the you know, 1940s by the military. It really began in the 1830s. I mean, I hate to say that it began in one particular decade, but you can, you can really see that everything has changed. Because by then, because of the discoveries that rocks are clocks, for example, that the Earth is very old, all sorts of magical things began to align themselves. You know, what we see is a widespread embrace of this idea of materialism as a way of explaining and understanding the world. That's the idea that everything that you see is the material effect of a a material cause. No more and no less. And the Earth, in fact, is this huge archive. The universe, which is, at that time they didn't believe, was infinitely old. But the universe is old and it writes its own autobiography in matter. So by studying matter and analyzing matter forensically, you actually learn about the history of the Earth. And if you can do that, you can actually make very robust predictions about how the Earth will evolve over time. Now this data visualization from 1841 is a very good example, first, of what people did with information overload. There was so much information coming in about the natural world that cartographers had to actually invent new ways of displaying data. And this is what you're seeing. You can see a cutaway of the earth. It's very dynamic. You can see an array of all these exotic animals. You even see, um, up in the corner, above me, above the volcano, evidence of extinctions. That's a dodo. Last cited in 1691. People didn't understand there were extinctions before um, this period of time. You know, further to the point that things really radically changed in the 1830s. It was um, in this time that Darwin embarked on his, you know, his voyage around the world, the HMS Beagle, with his volumes of Charles Lyell's um, Principles of Geology tucked under his arm. Another volume that I saw, volumes I saw here in your library. Um, in which gave him several hundreds of thousands of years in which to work out his earliest theories about natural selection. If you have a lot of time, you can actually explain and fit in a lot. In, the 18, um, in 1833, the word scientist was invented. Before that, there were only natural philosophers who studied natural law, and there were natural historians who observed the created earth. It was only with the invention of science, scientists, that you had people using natural law to interpret the evidence of the earth. And this combination really led to this really amazing drive to acquire much more information by inventing new information technologies. So in 1838, you have the first photographic technology, the daguerreotype. Um, You have telegraphy and railroads as well during this decade. By the 1860s, you have the invention of sound recordings. And honestly, by the 1890s, you have this very uncanny technology called an X-ray. You actually could take pictures of the bones lurking inside of flesh. And if you think that didn't tell people that the world was nothing like they thought, um, you know, you're know, in for a surprise. It was really a shocking thing to see Mr. Dr. Röntgen's wife's picture, a picture of his wife's hand in X-ray with a solid ring and solid bones and this gray matter in between, which we know of as flesh. So, this idea gave a completely new understanding of cause and effect and the ability to see patterns in the past and read patterns into the future. And it gives birth to this thing I call the forensic imagination. It's the imagination that actually drove Darwin. It certainly drove Freud to believe that you could actually analyze um, someone's illness by looking for traces, memory traces of past trauma through the evidence of dreams. Um, It certainly fueled the imagination of Arthur Conan Doyle when he created Sherlock Holmes. And it fuels the imagination of people who are creating the Large Hadron Collider today, wanting more and more data. So, with this massive interest in data, there was a massive explosion actually in things that needed to be stored. Um, This, although it looks like a very nice old-fashioned library, actually this is a very radical building. This is in Paris. It was started in 1838 to my point, and fin- finished in 1840 by Henri Labrouste, and it was totally infused with the revolutionary theories that that got Paris in an uproar in the 1840s the uh, when they had their revolution. You can see that he was using the latest technology which was a material which was cast iron which, uh, which allowed a lot of space. It also retarded fire, so it was uh, It was a fire retardant and it also opened up the space to a lot of windows and exemplified the enlightenment. In fact, it was a whole new um, aestheticization of knowledge. This was a building that was built for students. They had no reading rooms anywhere before this. They used to have to take books back to their dormitories. Now they actually could come to this public space and actually there was an, an aesthetic visualization of what knowledge was supposed to do and be for them. Um, We we don't really have that yet in this world, but it's quite fascinating um, because we think of it as so old-fashioned when at the time it was read as totally revolutionary and somewhat of an an affront to the um, well-heeled classes who had their own private libraries. So by the end of the 19th century, we saw this really big change, and there are four things I just want to mention since it is um, an election year. And I'm addressing to this all the registered voters in the room. So what it took for science and engineering to really take off and produce the present time were four things. First, I mentioned the empirical methods and materialist theories, but also the harnessing by economic systems to apply that knowledge um, to create ever finer instruments to create more knowledge that they could apply more to. The third was dedicated resources to educating an expert workforce which we certainly have seen much of in the United States until recently when there's been a faltering of that commitment. And last but not least, political regimes that are dedicated to keeping the pursuit of knowledge free from ideological interference. Um, So all these things are always at stake, every election year and at other times. So where do we go from here? With all of this knowledge, what could possibly go wrong? Um, And I think actually a lot, and this is where I pivot to neuroscience. You know, the brain has a very big job to do. It has to acquire a lot of information. It's bathed in this environment of um, too much information all the time, and it uses very elaborate, unconscious elaborating and filtering systems to filter out the short-term memory from that of long-term that that needs to retain for a long time. A word to the wise, it actually starts sifting the short-term from the long-term during what we know in vernacular terms as sleep. And if you don't sleep, the brain actually has no time to take the trash out. And so you start to accumulate a lot of trash in your head. And you are not able to form long-term memories. So certainly one of the mysteries of sleep is solved. We know that people sleep because it's vital for making memories. But if we can't make memories, then what is it? what happens to us? If we can't hold on to memories, what happens to us? And here I tell the story of Iris Murdoch. You may recognize her. She was a very prolific writer and philosopher and with a wild, wild, vivid imagination. And um, she succumbed eventually to Alzheimer's. You see her now, she was probably starting to succumb to Alzheimer's already in this picture, when this picture was taken, but people didn't know it at the time. And her story is told very movingly in a memoir by her husband in which he describes basically the the disintegration of iris. Yes, she loses her memory, and yes, she loses her spatial orientation. You know, um, the um, hippocampus that helps to form memories is attacked. It's the first organ that's attacked by Alzheimer's. Um, And in fact, it's actually not the formation of memories, but it's the recall unit that's just been um, shown um, by some scientists to to, uh, actually be attacked by Alzheimer's. But the main thing was that she lost her ability to imagine anything because she had no memory of how the world worked she couldn't figure out what she was supposed to do when she got out of bed in the morning so this was an artist who lost her imagination because she lost her memory you know, she really it really proves that memory is in fact sorry that imagination really is memory in the future tense and that's why you know I say that memory is really not about the past it really is about the future so memory losing memory is really bad, but also having too much is really bad. And here I want to talk. I talk about this um, about this man, a very wonderful Soviet era psychologist called Laurier, who had a very famous memory patient, a man called S. We don't we know his last name, but I won't tell you what his name is. He was a patient, so um, he doesn't get to have a name. He, get, he keeps his anonymity. But he was a man treated by Laurier, who apparently had the ability. Um, sorry, he had the ability to remember a very great deal, but he lacked what Laurier called the art of forgetting. And I want to actually quote some of the things that S and Laurier said. Um, You know, S was able to make a good living as a mnemonist. He was a memory artist. And he was able to amass a lot of information, commit it on demand, and then recall it in performance. But everyday life was actually quite difficult for him. It was very distressing. when he acquired new information. He put everything into the save folder and never anything into delete. So after a while his mind was really like this. This is what his memory palace ended up looking like. He couldn't consolidate any of his short-term memory into long-term memory and so he was incapable of understanding um, narratives and of making plans because odd as it sounds he actually didn't know how life worked. To him it was literally just one damned thing after another. You know, he said, and here I'm going to quote um, S himself, that he said, um, at one point I studied the stock market, and when I showed that I had a good memory for prices on the exchange, I became a broker. But it was just something I did for a while to make a living. As for real life, that's something else again. It took place in dreams, not in reality. And Luria says, you know, he had a fine life, a fine family, a wonderful wife, and a son who was a success. But this too he perceived as through a haze. Indeed, one would be hard put to say which was more real for him, the world of imagination in which he lived, or the world of reality in which he was but a temporary guest. So clearly these are parables about our collective memory. If we lose our collective memory at this juncture moving from print to, um, to digital, if we can't secure it into the future, we'll lose any sense of where we came from, we won't make sense of where we are now, and we will not be able to imagine what is possible for us. Also, if we keep too much information around, then we won't be able to understand the true value of things or to create a sense of purpose. Because the true value of the past is that it's the raw material of, um, of creating the future. And biology tells us that what is valuable is anything that has a potential to be reused. So we actually can't make any a priori judgments about what's going to be useful in the future. That's why we need to be able to keep so much around. Um, I just want to back up a little bit and say this was kind of a cheap shot this picture because it's actually it's very moving to me because it's actually a picture of a corridor of the Library of Congress, taken in um, 1897 when they're moving into their new building, purpose-built building, that massive building you see right behind the Capitol. Um, And uh, these were actually some of the copyright deposits that were being transferred from storage into shelving space. Nonetheless, it's a nice picture about what it means to actually manage knowledge by managing physical objects. If you can't find it, it's lost, and you've lost the knowledge. Anyway, you won't be surprised to know that within 10 years of moving into this building, they actually outgrew their space and some of the beautiful courtyards that had been designed by um, their architects had to be filled in for stacks. And they've built about 10 other buildings since to hold their their stuff. So with that um, note, I want to turn to now, what do we do now that we know that we need to keep everything? And it's quite difficult. So, the first thing that we do is we need to rescue the past from from its oblivion. We need to keep the artifacts as artifacts, because artifactual content is is information itself. The artifact carries information. But we also need to make it as widely accessible digitally as possible. And here um, I have on the screen Carl Haber, whom some of you may know, is an experimental physicist at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, working on the imaging technology at the very core of the Large Hadron Collider. And he is someone who discovered that um, there, were, there was a, a large cache of early sound recordings that held by the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, and others that were unplayable. Because as you may know, to play back analog, equip, analog um, sound recordings, you actually destroy them as you play them back. So he wanted some non-contact playback. And um, lots of these materials were actually broken. Um, or the wax cylinders were kind of misshapen, in fact. And so we actually made pictures, digital pictures, of the, um, recorded of the grooves. And what you see on the screen behind him is actually a picture of sound. So he's been able to use very high-tech technology built to, defa- to find the Higgs boson to rescue the voice of Alexander Graham Bell, actually speaking for the very first time into his recording device. Um, We also know that there are these massive amounts of mariners' logbooks, excruciating detail about every wave, every bird, every type of weather that comes through on these ships. The Royal Naval Museum is stuffed with these things. And they're interesting for maritime historians, but now that they've been scanned, actually, and they're a massive database, longitudinal database of retrospective data about oceanographic and atmospheric information, They are a fort Knox of information for people studying climate change. So, artifactual information reborn digitally as data has untold um, knowledge still to give us. So we need to convert these materials uh, sooner rather than later. We also uh, need to rescue the present for the future. And here you will recognize Brewster Kale, sorry Brewster, he's sitting in the front seat, another local hero. who has an exemplary kind of archive, the Internet Archive. Technology allows people now to become their own archivists. What they're lacking is, in fact, a robust backup system. But because of something like the Internet Archive, people are able to identify what is valuable to them and upload it onto the archive to be preserved. I say coyly, Uh, People are able to do this on institutions like the Internet Archive, but I think many of us know that the Internet Archive is unique and that, I think at least, the real business of libraries and archives is to replicate something like the Internet Archive to be able to make it possible to upload people's memories, as it were, the things that they value, um, and preserve them for the long term. We can talk more about that um, at the break um, or in in Q&A. One last thing I want to say about Thomas Jefferson Uh, before I wind up is that one of the things that's so instructive about Jefferson's library is that he collected everything that he thought it took to create this new being, the American citizen, and he he thought it was very important to have everything about America but also to have everything that recorded all the virtues and all the vice of men. And his book, his libraries were full of books with um, written by people that he strenuously disagreed with. For example, Hume. He couldn't stand Hume, the Tory, but he kept that because he thought that people needed to be able to know about everything that humans thought and be able to judge for themselves. I want to say, to me, the greatest threat to memory going forward is that we would create a knowledge monoculture in which all the stuff that we think is correct, that we agree with, gets saved. And I think we're at a real hazard of doing this. Everyone can say, yes, this would be true of China, or you know, the Soviet Union when it gets reincarnated in Russia. That, of course, they want to censor the past, but I think we do it too in our liberal democracy, committed to scientific knowledge trumping all other kinds of knowledge, that we, only, that we always privilege some kinds of knowledge over others. And I just want to point out to, that, to the wonderful biological truth that there is no such thing as a fixed, perfect being. That a being is the one that adjusts most rapidly to a changing environment. So that mammals, they didn't evolve legs so they could walk on earth. They actually had these wet, ling, leg-like accoutrements, these kind of you know maladaptations that when they were forced to, to land on land, they could actually recruit to become legs. And so they survived. These are called exaptations. And I think of that all the superseded information that we have in our libraries as these cultural exaptations. We all mourn the loss of the Library of Alexandria, but you know it wasn't lost in war. It was lost, it was allowed to perish because first the Christian emperors and later the Islamic Caliphate decided that it was full of pagan learning which had no value for the future and so they had no interest in keeping it around. But without the recovery, the excavation of that knowledge during the Renaissance and Reformation we would not have what we have today. We certainly wouldn't have rediscovered the Greeks and the Romans. We wouldn't understand democracy, and we certainly wouldn't have the foundations for scientific thinking that we have. So I think our own kind of temporal chauvinism poses a very great risk for us right now. Our sort of intellectual arrogance that because we're we're knowledgeable and scientific about things that we actually know more about than um, those people in the past. We don't. So the challenge uh, for us is um, to actually build a world in which the digital has that same, you know, really corporeal aesthetic experience that, this, that people can understand that um, this, this library embodies. But in fact, right now, what we have is this. So how do we aestheticize this experience? I mean, I look at Long Now and its attempt to help us think 10,000 years ahead it's got a manual for civilization that is in print format, very enduring. And it probably talks a lot about analog technologies for restarting um, restarting civilization when certain things um, don't pan out, shall we say. It has a Rosetta project which inscribes on very durable form, in eye legible form, information. And it also has a clock. So why would a, why would a computer scientist... Um, who's into faster, faster, faster actually think that a clock, a mechanical clock made out of very durable materials is the best symbol for the next 10,000 years. I ask you um, why that is. It's because it is going to last. So I want to, before turning to questions, I want to quote, again, a local hero of mine, a poet who wrote these words in 1986 in Berkeley. And I'm quoting the last stanza. He said, I imagine the earth when I am no more. Nothing happens, no loss. It's still a strange pageant. Women's dresses, dewy lilacs, a song in the valley. And yet the books will be there on the shelves, well-born, derived from people, but from radiance, heights. Those, of course, are the words of Chesov Miłosz, who called himself a poet of memory, who lived in exile from his native Poland and actually in exile from his native language, Polish. Who in fact kept himself body and soul together all those years of linguistic and political exile by tending to his own memory, using memory and curating it over time to build and to tell himself an autobiographical narrative that told him that his life, disrupted as it had been, was actually very meaningful because something would live beyond him. And through that, he had some chance at some immortality. You know, the immortality that all writers actually dream of, I think. So this is the challenge that I'll leave you with. This is not a Paleolithic uh, selfie, but a Neolithic selfie. It still comes from not the long now of 10,000 years ago, but the, but the long ago of 12,000 years ago. This is on a cave in Patagonia. And you can see that as soon as people settled somewhere, they wanted to make their mark. And so I wonder what those of us who think about the next 10,000 years, how will we think about leaving something as durable as this, making it not just for the next 10,000 years but for the next 12,000 years and letting somebody who finds it know that in fact it was created by humans who wanted to say hello. So I thank you very much.
0: Thank you, thank you, Abby. Um, do we have someone who can help out with uh, Q&A, Mike? Thank, thank you, Chris? So we'll take
1: some questions.
0: Yeah, um, and and I'm going to uh, use the advantage of my uh, poll position here to to ask you the first one actually. So um, one thing you touched on was that while it's imperfect, we have been able to recreate and 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 bring back and find some of those knowledge. So I'm curious if there's something to say about the history of um, of, of, of meta studies in terms of, um, of how memory works or how learning works and how and through history, um, as these uh, early scientists were curious about everything, mm-hmm. certainly the way we learned and the way we remembered. Um, so one, is there a history of that and things that are important there, books that we probably want to add to the Manual for Civilization, um, and second, Is there a digital equivalent of that, a type of of literature or study that's going on now that can help with that, or or, or something that there's a call for there?
1: You know, there's a lot of speculation about what memory will look like in in terms of what documents we need to keep around. Um, And I'm not quite sure that's what you're getting at, but I do know that one of the things, at least that I find the most interesting now about thinking long-term about memory is The return of um, what I would call oral cultural habits. You know people mistakenly think that the web somehow is a library um, and they actually think of it as they go on and they expect the same kinds of um, privacy that you expect in a public library where you know what you search is not traced and things like that. I think in fact As many of you know, the World Wide Web was invented as a bulletin board to be used by nuclear physicists to communicate. They had no intention of making it into anything permanent. So I think we're making a fundamental mistake that all of the information that we exchange regularly through telecommunication has any any claim to permanence any more than telephones did. So I think there's a lot of work to be done on trying to distinguish between what really should be written and have a long life that way, and that which we need to recognize simply as part of our ongoing oral tradition, which can be continued orally, um, like on Instagram or something like that.
0: Um, And uh, just a quick moment. I mentioned it in passing briefly, but we do have some folks listening at home. We have uh, Long Now members can tune in to our interval talks uh, live uh, thanks to Support from Edward Bratinsky and his new film Anthropocene. So, a tip of the hat to them, and and welcome to uh, folks on the stream who may be asking questions as well. But do we have any questions in the room to get started? How about this uh, first one right at the bar? Is that on? Yeah. I was interested in your use of S as a powerful for, um, you know, for memory now for our cultural memory, and and it seemed that the issue there was he remembered everything so he couldn't extract the meaning. But then I heard you suggesting that we should be archiving everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do we make sure we find the meaning or so so our future selves will find the meaning? Thinking backwards, if we had a YouTube of ancient Greece, we'd know a lot about food and clothing in ancient Greece, but would we find Socrates or Plato?
1: (laughs) Ah, that's a good question. Um, You know, I, I think that, in fact, one of the things that's difficult... um, just to to hoist myself on my own petard, um, that I think it's difficult in trying to imagine the future to use the past uh, too literally because we're used to actually a system um, where very little ever got into print to begin with. So we're dealing with an economy of real, real scarcity, relative scarcity, and now one of this information abundance. The other thing that's quite difficult for me to imagine um, hard as I try, is that it's not people who will be reading all this information. It's machines that will be reading the information. We'll be doing the algorithms or whatever there will be in order to set the machines to do this reading for us. But I'm really thinking in terms of um, personal memory, we can actually curate our own personal memory, take responsibility for it, our genealogical, you know, what we pass on to our family, things like that. But we need to be able to rely on the greater culture to actually keep all the information like government archives, scientific data, that kinds of things, those kinds of things that we can feel safe, that those things are being saved. And I really, I think we will not know until, say, 50 or 100 years what kinds of information will be useful. And so we need to err on the side of keeping too much now. Um, I actually talk about this at some technical level in the, not too technical, in the book that... We ought to be saving as much data as we can at this lowest level of curation so that in 50 years we won't have, lots, we won't have discrete collections of heavily curated information that we thought was cool. We'll have a lot of lowly, low curation data which will then afford people in the future to make their own decisions about what's really valuable because by then they'll have really neat new technologies to extract information and uh, uh, see patterns that we can't even imagine now.
0: Is a question right here on the third row?
2: Make sure to hold it really close, closer than you think you should. Okay, how's this? Uh, you, you mentioned a, a number of interesting points in your talk. Um, and the things that leap out to me are, uh, you mentioned like this, like you know, putting together this synthesizing of information. <laughs> so my question is, if, if part of memory is really also in the recall, uh-huh. and maybe leading to imagination you know in in the modern era we probably have more of a glut of information perhaps we're also just spending a lot more time reacting to it than thinking about it are we also do you have a sense that as a society we're not as good at thinking about it as as uh, reflecting you know that's taking the time to actually think about things that than people in the past were because because we are overwhelmed by the glut of information. We just go from thing to thing to thing without taking the time.
1: Right. Uh, Well, let me say that I I think we're actually going through a phase which we have seen with every innovation in technology, which is the first generation, first couple generations are really overwhelmed. And uh, we, many people in the room, are are growing up in this hybrid environment, you know, born print and born print natives moving into digital. I think this will persist for several, for several generations. I think by the time you have the second or third generation of just born digital, um, and the people who are now growing up with digital technology have gone through their life cycle, so they've gone through multiple cycles of technology themselves, um, and they are living actually far longer than we're gonna live. They're gonna live in their 80s, 90s, 100, and beyond. They've had children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren making fun of them for their old-fashioned technologies like Instagram. Um, That, in fact, it'll be very different. I mean, I know that people growing with technology, this is an anecdote, this is not evidence, um, but that people growing up with the technologies actually are already automatically filtering a lot of it. I actually, and there's a lot of evidence to show this, it's the generation that's caught in between that are actually overwhelmed by the information. You know, we respond, every time the phone rings, we feel like we've got to, like, do something with it. And, in fact, that's not the way uh, people are growing up. So I really think it's too soon to say, but we're going to get over it. We get over everything eventually.
0: (laughs) Great. So right here on the front row. Here you go, Bruce.
2: Doesn't sound like you're a utopian, but it does sound like you're an optimist. And that's good. uh, The title of your book is When We Are No More. Mm -hmm. Um, That sounds pretty downer. Can you help explain the title?
1: Well, the title really um, was a takeoff on the poem, the actually stanza poem that, that um, I read, I Imagine the World I Am No More. And uh, I don't think it's a downer at all. I mean, I think the truth is that most of us realize, actually, when we're really young, that there will be a time when the world goes on when we are no more. What's going to happen to us? Some people don't care about that, but a lot of people care, if not, you know, about their not being around anymore, what's going to happen in the future. And... I will say, because we're among friends at Long Now, Long Now is trying to take, actually help us think about how to take responsibility for the world when we are no more. Because you know, Brewster, now we're this dominant species who, if we don't care about what happens after our time, could really lead to a disaster, a, a die-off of innumerable things that really sustain the planet. So it's really not about us and about when we are no more. It's about the, you know, making sure there's a future for all of life on the planet. Yeah, and I'm not utopian. I think utopians, i lived in the Soviet Union for quite a while. I'm very wary of people who tell you that they are certain of how the future is going to turn out. Because they're the ones who can manipulate people in the present and the past. So I'm very wary about that. But yes, being a historian, I think we're an extremely durable species. And we've been through much bigger, harder, much bigger trouble than we are in now. And we have more awareness. Now than we've ever had before, so the cultural fixes are there. we just need to embrace them
0: so, so so to follow up for a second on your book, tell us a little more about why you wrote this book what was what was uh, compelling you to write this book, and by the end of it uh, did you say what you expected to say, or did you find some different things?
1: Well, I, I will. I confess that uh, I started thinking about this book in 1997 when I started thinking ri- quite literally about what was going to happen You know, when there were no books, as an historian. And I was working at the Library of Congress uh-huh. at that time. And uh, nobody seemed to realize what was happening except people in, in that particular world and some technologists. But they didn't care about the future, actually. But archivists did. And at that time, with Bill Clinton's administration, The archives were actually, National Archives were being overwhelmed with emails that were on these things, you know, these floppy disks. What were they going to do? They had no technology to even read them. And I started in a spirit of extraordinary pessimism, to be honest. I had to answer that question what is going to happen? Um, I'm happy to find out that it took me forever to come up with an answer. But during that time, I actually discovered that, in fact, technology can solve a lot of our problems, and people are more aware of um, the, the problem existing. But the real uh, drive for writing the book and writing a book that is very short as opposed to an exhaustive treatment of the subject, which was the first version of the book I wrote, is that it's really this sense um, a, a kind of moral, I wouldn't say moral outrage, but excitement, let's say. I'm tired as a historian of people in my own field as history and in the technology world as treating preservation as a technical issue that people can geek out about but in fact, is just something that people who live below the stairs should be doing. It's just infrastructure. And the glamorous stuff is creating data. You know, it's engineering systems to create more data. Because in fact, I think that without the past, you have no future. So it was really out of that sense of trying to convince people that the past, if you care about the future, it makes the past more valuable than ever. And it seemed to me, in particular in Silicon Valley, people don't understand that necessarily.
0: Um, and we have one it, more. Michael, question. There's,
1: there's a, oh, a woman who's not in your sightline, who's been in the back, in right. the back, who's had a qu- hand raised. Great. <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs> I'm going to make an executive decision. We'll do two more questions. Okay, fine. So you'll get, you'll get fine. Yours.
1: This, I guess, this is the millennial question. Um, but so many of my friends on Facebook and Instagram show their lives as this super glamorous thing. You know, the only things that we see are them at parties, having a good time. How are we going to preserve this sense of alienation and isolation that we sometimes feel and kind of our saddest moments that you never see on on social media? Well, I think you'll, um, believe me, when you reach a certain age, um, you will realize that all of that, you know, you'll take on certain responsibilities and so will your cohort. And I think you actually sort of grow through um, a stage of uh, middle age, which is, uh, you know, one of the most difficult stages in life. When you start to encounter in very real human terms, your own failings and you can't escape them anymore and you're old enough to know that there's just, you know, you have to actually live with them and live through them. But you're going to be going through this with all those people that, you know, uploaded those Instagram photos that look so glamorous. So you'll be surrounded by other people going through the same experience. And I can't tell you how you're going to deal with it because that's actually what you're going to create the solutions for that yourself by living through it. And, um, I mean, I think it's an extraordinary privilege that people have, the Millennials, that they will be, you know, the the pathfinders for so many behaviors that seem to become default after, you know, after you set that example, people will be coming along and refining it. But all I can say is, you know, you will outgrow that phase, and you'll move into the next phase, and uh, people will be doing what many people my age do, which is, uh, use social media to share horror stories and how we live through them. <laughs>
0: and that, that may be because we're out of the you're out of the job market now, and you don't have to worry <laughs> about that showing up with a potential employer. Yeah, right. Because right. there are plenty of uh, other generations have those uh, coming out along the way too. Yes, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, and now our last question of the night, thank you. Yeah,
2: so somewhat related to that question, I guess a lot of the data and the memories that we're creating today are are being stored and moved around by companies who um, provide those services for free because (laughs) it's compatible with a commercial interest in advertising and selling us things. Um, So can you speak to the implications of that in the future or maybe relate it to previous eras? Um, information technologies.
1: Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's, I didn't have time to talk about it, but um, these commercial companies that provide information you know, platforms for free um, are a subject of, well, I wouldn't say that they're the villain of the book, but I think that uh, many people growing up in fact, many people who are grown up don't understand that for free doesn't really exist in the world, um, and so and so they're actually um, they're actually using you know getting the data and using it in ways that we actually do not know or if we did we would not approve of. So I actually I think there's a moment coming up in the next ten to fifteen years when, excuse me, despite you know, American politics. There, we will have to make major policy decisions about copyrights versus licensing. Who owns their own data? What uses can we use of data? Um, we're going to get better at actually anonymizing data so that we actually have protocols for non- anonymizing medical data, for example, and we can actually make m- major advances in medicine by using this these massive corpora of anonymized medical data. But I think the things that um, we, that we touch on that, I mean, that you touched on about um, platforms that control, if not own our data, control our data, are all things that we need to settle sooner rather than later. Because I don't, I don't think it's realistic, again, as a historian, no matter what I want, I don't think it's realistic to think in the United States these technology companies will be giving stuff away, or that we can turn to the government, the, par- the public sector, to innovate in the way that is necessary. But I do think we need to put a lot of you know, governors on the capitalists who use our data for their purposes. And so I'm just waiting for a time when we can have a robust public so- policy debate about this. Um, in the meantime, I do everything I can in the book to actually explain this is the situation um, that most people find themselves in. You know, we don't control um, our email. If we use Gmail, Gmail controls our, our email. So, I mean, those are things that many people don't quite realize. So I don't know how it'll be solved. But it will be solved, you know, within the next 15 years, I think.
0: Well, Abby, thank you so much for, you. for taking the time.
1: Thank you all very much.
0: I want to give you this long now challenge going to thank you for uh, joining our conversation. Thank Sparies. you. Please stick around. Please, uh, the, the books that I said are for sale in the back. Uh, And Abby will be here to answer more questions uh, and to sign your books. And thanks again for coming out to The Interval. We hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.